Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and as always, I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Hannah Abrams and Avi Cooper. Hannah, Avi, how are you guys doing? Oh, it's great to see you guys. Always happy to be back. Yeah. How about you, Avi? It's good, it's good to get together. So uh, for our get together uh, this evening, we're gonna go be we're gonna be talking about uh, an arrhythmia that's fun to pronounce, but not so much fun to encounter in your patients, and that's going to be torsade de point. Uh, we'll learn why magnesium is so effective at treating this particular arrhythmia, and also learn about its use in the otherwise unrelated conditions like asthma and eclampsia. Uh, so it's also always helpful to kind of start with like why look into this topic. So maybe you can start us off with that, Avi. What was it that uh, fascinated you about the idea of magnesium? So you know how you remember like where you were when momentous things happen? <laughs> you know, I wasn't alive for the landing on the moon, but if I had been, I would have probably remembered where I was. So, the, the <laughs> so there's something momentous about magnesium, apparently. Well, I mean, so the first cardiac arrest resuscitation that I led as a resident was actually a case of torsade. Um, and that event kind of just imprinted and like burned itself into my memory and partly probably because of the stress of having to lead a code for the first time. But I was just fascinated by the arrhythmia and itself and the way that magnesium works so well and reliably in treating it. So that's why I wanted to learn more about it. Yeah. Wait, uh, before we start, can we clarify, is it torsades or torsade? According to Google Translate's pronunciation of this word, it's okay. torsade. <laughs> so we're going to be going with torsade. And but it's but 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 it, but I'm curious, Hannah. You chose you chose to ask about torsade versus torsades. Why not points versus points? As though I'm even pronouncing that like reasonably correctly. So I wouldn't even dare. I know. Pardon, pardon my French, but you know, I just I can't. I don't know. Yeah, it's good that you're feeling so magnanimous and letting us decide how we'll uh, how we'll pronounce it. Okay, Avi, how did Torsades get this name? So it was actually first described by a French physician named Francois Desartes in 1966. He observed it. Um, and the characteristic EKG findings of torsade on a patient that he was taking care of in the hospital. And he described it as ventricular tachycardia with two variable foci. So this is actually a reasonable description that he came up with because torsade is a type of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And in the paper, he called it torsade de pointe, or in English, twisting peaks. It's interesting because I, I had always heard it that it was twisting of the points, but the actual translation is twisting peaks. Is that right? I again, I think so. Yeah. Well, well Google Translate. <laughs> Google Translate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, Avi, can you walk us through uh, the mechanism of of torsade? Like, how does it? Um, how is it generated in a patient? So, let me ask you both a question: What electrocardiographic state goes through your minds when you see torsade? So for me, uh, it would be QT prolongation. Yeah, for me, it would definitely be my own SVT, but sure, sure, QT prolongation. <laughs> that was my experience as well. <laughs> so <laughs> so exactly. So torsade is essentially, it only arises in the context of a prolonged QT interval. And although there's there are congenital long QT syndromes, most commonly the QT interval is going to become prolonged from exposure to certain medications or 
myocardial ischemia or electrolyte derangements. Okay, so how do we get from prolonged QT to torsades? So there actually is a specific sequence of events that leads to torsade. So following a normal sinus beat, the ventricles will repolarize. Now remember, we're talking about a situation where the QT interval is prolonged, so the repolarization process is going to take longer. If a ventricular ectopic beat happens to fall during that repolarization period, then torsade can be triggered. And this event is referred to as an early after depolarization or an EAD, and it sets off the reentrant circuit in the ventricles. And that up and down morphology or the twisting of peaks that Francois de Sartin noted, it's actually the circulation of this reentrant circuit that's been triggered. So when you see that up and down, almost wave-like motion mm-hmm. on the, on, on the um, telemetry, that's actually the circulation of this reentrant circuit. It's quite vivid. Like a flutter wave, but way worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, um, where does the magnesium come into this? Yeah, so to understand that, we need to review the mechanics of cardiac myocyte repolarization. And I, I had to re- refresh my memory on this, really. But um, you, you, you may remember that sodium influx drives depolarization. So this is followed by repolarization, which has four phases. Okay, bear with me. (laughs) I suspect you're about to go through the four phases. Uh, But I must. So phase one involves potassium efflux from the myocyte. So it goes out. Phase two involves both potassium efflux and calcium influx. And phases three and four, more potassium efflux. So potassium efflux is what repolarizes the cell by driving positive charge out, and that makes the membrane potential more negative. So as you might expect, calcium influx as a positively charged ion in phase two, it actually temporarily balances the flow of charge so that the repolarization stalls. So you guys may remember that that's that kind of plateau phase on the membrane potential time graph versus time. So that that early the early after depolarization that we talked about, the EAD that causes torsade, that occurs during phase two with calcium influx into the cell. That actually was, I'll be honest, a very, very clear explanation. Um, and actually worked a lot better than I was expecting to because without a picture, it's kind of hard, I think, to understand these action potentials and depolarization, repolarization. But that, that was pretty clear. Yeah, so... Basically, depolarization, that plateau phase that we remember, is about potassium influx kind of stalling repolarization. Okay. Calcium. Calcium. That's what I meant. Definitely calcium. (laughs) Okay. So calcium influx is stalling the repolarization. Where's magnesium come in? Very fair question. (laughs) Like, why are we talking about this? So a case series in 1984 from the American Journal of Cardiology was the first description of the use of magnesium sulfate to treat torsade. And they successfully treated three patients, all of whom had acquired prolonged QT intervals from different medications. So when I was first reading the original article, I thought it was really, you know, it was it was interesting that, and really quite impressive, that they intuited to try magnesium at all. Remember, this was like before this was known to work. And, you know, all of their patients had normal serum magnesium levels. So that that was really the, the really impressive insight on their part that to try this. Because at the time, the, the standard treatments for torsade were overdrive pacing and isoproteranol, both of which will increase the heart rate 
and shorten the QT interval. This group in 1984 cited a case series from 1968 where two patients were treated for what was thought to be V-fib induced by hypomagnesemia and long QT. The 1984 authors that tried MAG, they actually reinterpreted the EKG tracings from 1968 in that paper that it was actually torsad, which really you know had only just been described. Um, and then oh. it seemed to they they seem to have made the, medic, the the connection between low magnesium levels in those patients from that previous paper, and using magnesium to treat torsad in the patients in front of them who had normal mag levels. And I just I I was really impressed. Like this is a remarkable feat of clinical reasoning. I think to figure this out. So, so the 1968 K series. They didn't call it Torsad because Torsad had just been described like two years earlier. They may not have even heard about it. I mean, it was like in a French paper. It might, who knows if it had been translated in English for them. I mean, we don't, I don't know. They may not even know it existed. But these guys in 1984, they looked back and said, ah, that looks like Torsad to me. And those patients had a low mag. So let's give them some mag. Yes. Gosh, talk about doing your homework. Because they, they they weren't able they weren't just like going on up to date or going on PubMed.gov in 1984, they're like in the library, pulling articles and looking at strips of ECGs from 1968. That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, wait, it's, wait. yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. So, but back to magnesium. So, how does it work? So, I found this story just as incredible. So, it turns out that magnesium functions physiologically as a calcium channel blocker. And this actually makes sense because they both are divalent cations and they sit right on top of each other in the second column of the periodic table in the group known as the alkaline earth metals. Um, and I I just, I have to mention this kind of semi-stressful nostalgia that this gave me going back to like pre-med chemistry. Like it's literally been 15 years since I have like used the periodic table. <laughs> Would you would you say that divalent cations are an astrontium suit of yours? <laughs> well, you, I'll, I'll be honest though, Avi. Um, I don't know actually if either of you know this about me, but before I went to medical school, I was an eighth grade earth science teacher. Whoa. And for um, that's aw- that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> for detention, this the the students in my class had to um, uh, fill in a blank periodic table. So I, you know, I was your, I of course had periodic table like in my classroom, like in the pull down thing. Like I just, I love the periodic table. I am constantly looking for opportunities to draw it when teaching the residents about like, why does lithium get reabsorbed in patients who have, you know, volume depletion. So it may cause some semi-stressful nostalgia for you, Avi, but it, 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 it forms um, a happy nostalgia for me to think about the periodic table. So I'm glad that you brought it up here. Wow, when you when you teach it to the residents, does it bore you? <laughs> too many too many element puns. Okay, I'll I'll seize them. <laughs> so moving on. Um, uh, so Avi, you mentioned earlier uh, that calcium temporarily stalled that cardiac repolarization, right? So all that potassium is constantly being effluxed during all four phases of repolarization. But during that phase two, calcium is also coming in. And so you've got that kind of like counterbalance and you've got that sort of flattening of the repolarization uh, curve, if you want to call it that. Um, And then that there's this uh, early after depolarization that could potentially occur uh, during that period. Does that sound right? Yes, yes. 
Okay. So um, is it that, that magnesium is acting as a calcium channel blocker, like during that period where calcium is influxing? Is that like the place that it's doing its calcium channel blocker activity, if, if it's doing one? Yeah, and that I think that's exactly right. So blocking calcium channels during repolarization suppresses those early after depolarizations or EADs. And this was actually first shown to be the case in an experiment in the 1980s with some kind of unfortunate dogs that they were um, they had EADs that were induced by cesium infusions, hmm. and then were given mag to see what happened, and it. Terminate totally terminated the arrhythmias and stopped those e EADs. So can you um, like do you remember that it's I'll say obviously you remember that case from when you were resident that first code is that what happened in that case did the the magnesium kind of terminate the the rhythm like before your eyes like do you remember? yeah I, yeah I mean it worked like it kind of works like magic I mean it's it, that's the word to use to describe it because you give the drug and you know very often the arrhythmia just stops. And it just disappears. And, you know, Josh Farkas did a great job describing this on, on palm crit. You know, he called the, the magnesium, the, the naloxone of torsad in terms of its efficacy and the quick onset of action. I think that's a really great way to conceptualize, you know, how, how it can work. And, you know, I, I would add that though, that the, you know, the next, as soon as that arrhythmia is terminating, the next thing to do after you've successfully, successfully gotten the patient out of torsad with the mag is to figure out like why they went into torsad in the first place. And again, usually you're going to be looking for drugs, electrolytes, cardiac ischemia, some combination of all of those, but that's kind of the next thing to do. You know, what's fascinating about this is there are a few things in medicine, um, where, uh, a series of two to five or 10 patients um, changes practice and we don't demand a randomized trial. There's never been a randomized trial of torsad versus placebo for, sorry, of magnesium versus placebo for torsad, right? I'm assuming that Avi, is that right? Not that I'm aware of. But, and we're willing to accept the sort of empiric observations and these case series and say that this is first line therapy. And I, I find that um, it, that's a rarity in medicine, but it seems that no one has pushed back on this, despite the fact that they're, you know, we're lacking the, the usual quote unquote gold standard. And I have no problem with that, by the way, just to be clear. So, you know, magnesium um, isn't just used for torsade. It's used to treat asthmatics in severe acute exacer uh, exacerbations of their asthma and in other conditions. I is the mechanism felt to be the same there? Yeah. So it's actually having a calcium channel blocking effect in the bronchioles. Um, and you know it's it's blocking mm -hmm. both calcium influx into smooth muscle cells, and it competes with calcium for um, binding to calmodulin, which blocks its ability to activate actin myosin cross bridge cycling. So that both of those effectively are going to relax smooth muscle cells around the airways and lead to bronchodilation. Which again, I thought was just really cool. I mean, it's the same mechanism, just blocking the calcium channels. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So the other kind of way in which I think of magnesium as a drug is in eclampsia. So, I mean, is it the same thing? Yeah, yeah, it is. And so magnesium is the drug of choice for seizure prevention and severe preeclampsia and eclampsia. And there are a number of theories as to kind of what magnesium's action is there. The primary mechanism is probably that magnesium inhibits the excitatory NMDA receptors. So NMDA binds glutamate, but um, the ion that actually conducts across the receptor and kind of mediates its action is 
Can you guess? Uh, calcium? calcium. It's calcium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, it'd be so awkward if it were like, like, oh, it's barium. Yeah, yeah. it's barium. Obviously, it's fluoride. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't work it's nearly chlorine. as well. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so it's yes, not surprisingly, magnesium is blocking calcium flow through NMDA, and that blocks the neuroexcitation that leads to seizures. Now, some also believe that cerebral vasoconstriction plays a role in eclamptic seizures and magnesium because it's a calcium channel blocker would also be helpful with that mechanism as well. Again, just, I think just so cool that it all works the same exact way. Um, so you covered a lot of cool stuff, uh, but I, I suspect, uh, there may even be more. So, so what else, um, can we learn about the beauties of magnesium? So one cool thing that I didn't know was that magnesium has actually been studied um, to be helpful in rate control of rapid atrial fibrillation. And it's probably via a similar mechanism as a other calcium channel blockers like diltiazem, but I've never used it for that purpose, but you know, it's been studied. And also in the setting of, you know, severe hypermagnesemia, like levels in the eight, 10, 12 milliequivalents per liter zone, patients can get flaccid paralysis and apneic respiratory failure. In addition to cardiac toxicities, like complete heart block. And just to complete the circle here, all of these effects are probably from calcium channel blockade and pushing IV calcium can temporize, you know, kind of these um, kind of really true emergencies, life-threatening emergencies while you're doing other things to try to bring the magnesium level down like fluids or furosemide or going to emergently dialyze, whatever it is, uh, pushing IV calcium can, can be helpful. It really all comes back to the periodic table. I feel so emboldened that my um, detention uh, work was to fill in the periodic table. I feel like the real lesson here is that everything comes around and around in a reentrant loop. <laughs> yeah. No, you're, I'm going to go you're, back to the periodic table. <laughs> your circular logic befuddles me. Hey. <laughs> all right. So... This was a super, super cool explanation for why magnesium essentially acts as a calcium channel blocker. And in doing so, literally kind of stops the reentrant beats or the EACs that can trigger torsades and perpetuate torsades. Can you walk us through what are your take home points? I, I think you already hit on them, but oh, <laughs> that, was, that was really good. <laughs> um, but I will just know, I'll just add to what you said is that, um, you know, really is that it's, it's, acting as a calcium channel blocker in every therapeutic capacity that we talked about tonight, whether it's treating torsade, um, you know, reducing bronchospasm and asthma, preventing seizures and eclampsia. It all has to do with the divalent cation and similarities with calcium and acting as a calcium channel blocker. And so, so I'm going to uh, add to my list of calcium channel blockers. I've got verapamil, I've got diltiazem, and I'll just add magnesium to that list. Always looking for a new treatment for AFib with RVR. That's that's the story of intern year. Yeah, I'll, I will tell you on that one. I that is um, something I've only seen in the last year or so, um, mm. but uh, I've seen it done a few times, and I can't say that it's quite as um, miraculous as magnesium for tarsad, but it, it, it does seem to help a little bit. Um, all right, Avi, that was really fantastic. Um, and that wraps up this episode of The Curious Clinicians. Um, thanks again for joining us. Uh, if you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point that you think we should feature on the show, please do tag us on Twitter. I'm at Tony underscore Brew. I'm at Avraham Cooper MD. 
And I'm at Hannah R. Abrams. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at, at CuriousClinPod. You can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have the show notes for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. We're also excited to partner with BCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode, which I think you already did. So for more information, please visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash Curious Clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Thanks for joining us. See ya. See ya.